Hi, everyone, to another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. This is Mina Malapetti, CEO of Amplify MD, and today I'm here with Dr. Doug Salvador, Chief Quality Officer at Bay State Health. Uh, Doug, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mina. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm so excited we had a chance to connect this morning. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, as always, I'm going to start it off a little bit with the personal side in terms of having you introduce yourself to the audience and maybe starting with you know, what brought you to healthcare? You're an MD yourself. Um, was you know what what drew you to the field and what's kept you in the field? Quite frankly, you have a passion for um, quality. You have a passion for making things better. Maybe you have a passion for getting patients treated appropriately the first time. Um, was there something specific driving you down that path, or that's just where, kind of where you found yourself after after kind of going through the industry over the years? Um, thanks for asking, Mina. So I'm a first generation America. My my dad. John is, uh, was a concrete construction worker from Portugal, and my mom, Helen, stayed home with uh, my sister and I, uh, was raised on Long Island, and uh, really uh, first generation to go to college, so didn't really have um, role models in, in healthcare or, or as physicians um, to begin with, but, but you know, a, a typical immigrant story in my family. Uh, my parents really pushed um, uh, education and and higher education. So, um, uh, I, I ended up uh, going to college thinking I was going to be on a PhD engineering track, um, but really felt at some point that that was a lot of delayed gratification, and I wanted some more uh, instant gratification. And, and uh, where I was, it was really easy to get enamored uh, with with medicine and medical school. So I chose that route. In uh, medical school, I was uh, really enamored and, and, and taken by the care of HIV patients and diagnosis. I happened to go to a place where the best diagnosticians in the hospital were infectious disease docs, and that's who I wanted to be. So um, uh, moved on a little bit from there, and in my infectious disease fellowship, I, I started down a, a clinical trials and a, uh, and a, a uh, clinical research pathway. Um, but uh, again, during my master's in public health, uh, really discovered quality improvement and patient safety and, and saw that as a way to use the scientific process, create hypotheses, measure and analyze uh, the, the results and test them. Uh, but in this case, rather than enrolling patients for four years and analyzing the data for two and, and hopefully getting a great answer, um, I saw it as a way to make care better tomorrow and next week. And I just, I, I just haven't looked back. I've been a, a physician leader of quality and patient safety for the last uh, approximately 20 years, and I'm uh, not bored yet. That's amazing. And, and that's, you're so lucky in terms of being finding a job that you're still so passionate about, um, you know, all these years later. So, um, and yeah, congratulations. It's, it's something that everyone aspires to. And, and I love hearing kind of what brought you to this point, because a lot of people, a lot of kids these days will see themselves in you um, in terms of maybe not the full background, but there's pieces of it. I mean, I myself, uh, first generation immigrant as well. And same thing, my parents, education was, was the way, right? So um, that's, that's amazing. In terms of what you've been seeing since you know over the last two decades that you've been working specifically in in quality and healthcare, um, where was the field when you started, and where is it today? And and kind of, did you think that, you know, if you had looked back and you you'd stood there twenty years ago roughly and said twenty years, Mina, this is where we're going to be. Do you think we've exceeded your expectations? 
um, maybe not come close enough or kind of where exactly where we thought we would be? So it was a heady time and uh, back, uh, I'm old, back 20 years ago, um, you know, the, the quality and safety uh, field was still relatively new and the diagnosis field, which um, is really my passion, uh, was nascent. And um, we had high hopes and I think we all felt like there was momentum building and we'd be, frankly, much farther along uh, at this point uh, th than we are. And, and I think, you know, there's lots of evidence that your, your listeners uh, can point to, but the most recent uh, New England Journal safety study, um, you know, really puts us in a similar place to where we were um, even 30 years ago in terms of medical error and harm to patients uh, from the healthcare system and quality. Um, and so, uh, frankly, I think we're all a little disappointed. I know that people tend to talk about it in two ways. One is a system way, and there's been a lot of work done on that in terms of medications, right, and tracking the right medications and, and this, that, the other, and there's processes you can put in place to track those kinds of errors. And then there's just the workflow and diagnosis errors. And I think, I don't know if you want to expound on which part of it concerns you more, if you feel like there's been more progress in the system errors that people can protocolize and track and, and do things about versus diagnostic, or do you feel like both of them have kind of not um, kind of moved as far as you would like? Well, I think we may talk a little more about root causes um, um, and problems in the healthcare system, but a lot of this relates to the the incentives in the system, the the, the interfaces and the disconnected um, uh parts of the healthcare system and increasing subspecialization, uh, which creates even more uh, complexity and even more uh, interfaces. So uh, like most folks who grew up in the quality movement, uh, the vast majority of this, whether it's diagnosis error or it's uh, a medication error or communication error really is about system. And, um, and, and I think that's the place we all uh, sort of need to start. Um, what we need is a more integrated, more uh, uh, seamless, more reliable um, way to deliver to patients um, the little things that they need every day in every clinic, on every shift on the floor in the hospital. And, and that high reliability ideal, um, you know, uh, is, is a lot about uh, creating this complex socio-technical system, which just works better than what we have today. Um, I read a study where they're talking about checklists, right, and how checklists have come into being and, and done a lot. I'd love to get your opinion because there was, there was one, um, one article talked about how for surgeries, if you went through, I think it was a 30 item checklist or something like that, um, not a short one, but it cut errors during surgery and, and improved it by 50%, 50% just by going through a checklist before you started, right? So we wanted to get your thoughts in terms of, I mean, that seems like low hanging fruit. I don't know. Do you feel like we've, we've even hit all the low hanging fruit that is possible today? Or is there still more out there that, that you're kind of got in your eyes? Yeah. So so we're not close to hitting the low-hanging fruit, but you know, you, the question is, why aren't we, right? And 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 so a checklist is one way to make care reliable, and there's reasons why we don't do it reliably today. There are social reasons, right? Out, we often say that quality improvement is a social endeavor. It's about taking a group of people 
with all of the relationship issues and the communication issues and the and and the 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 incentives uh, that all those folks have and creating high performing teams but you know unfortunately you know no team is perfect and 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 there's been obviously a lot of literature about how to create that but it, you know it doesn't matter what industry you work in it's not just healthcare there 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 are things about putting people together leadership uh, data availability, resources, staffing, um, and the interpersonal connections that prevent us from working seamlessly together. And, you know, it's, it's, we understand that um, if we have a high-performing team, the likelihood of them successfully integrating that checklist and getting the result you describe is much better than if we have a less high-performing team, right? We have these culture of safety surveys that, that are done now in healthcare uh, broadly. And um, we know that, that teams that have you know, high perceptions of teamwork climate, and high perceptions of safety climate actually improve and incorporate those things like checklists or other there are other um, uh, tools that we put in place to create reliability uh, they, they work better so so it, it's a complex system it's it, it you know it's 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 not um, an easy thing even to say you know if we wanted to put that checklist in place and all the leaders in every OR where those checklists could be implemented were on board and wanted to do it, we still couldn't get it right every time, right? For for lots of socio-technical reasons. Um, and and you know, that's that holy grail of taking a tool, a solution like a checklist, and scaling it is really all that we're talking about now across the board in, in healthcare with all of the technology companies, all of the promise of the smartphone apps and the machine learning algorithms and the and the interconnectedness that technology can bring. It's really all in service of scaling tools like that um, and making it as easy as possible. You brought up the word workflow for folks to use it so that so the adoption happens and the result is is what we get. So if we had to break it down, you'd say environment is actually the first piece. And quite, it sounds like the piece that everyone's still working on to, to get um, to get everyone on the same page. And then comes the workflow, which might actually sound like it might be an easier thing to do than it's been so far once you've got buy-in from the teams. And then it's execution. Is that a fair breakdown of the different steps? Um, I, I think that's true. And I think that, um, you know, when you describe it that way, it sounds very easy. <laughs> But the reality is, um, you know, part of the problem in the current healthcare system is that change is really hard. It, it's, it's um, you know, we talk a lot about patient-centeredness, um, but we're still in the traditional healthcare system, pretty provider-centric. And we still um, do not uh, really buy in uh, to standardizing around uh, single workflows across large organizations. And it's, it's the rare organization today in traditional healthcare that can do that. And that, and that is, you know, that is uh, in, I think, part of the reason why uh, big organizations that have traditionally been more patient-centered like retailers um, who have the, the track record of scaling tools and solutions have taken so much of the primary care market um, in, in such a short time. Because they were focused on that methodology in that environment to begin with. Oh, that makes sense. When, when you think about, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> completely different. I mean, yeah, clinic, clinics versus the actual hospital or your doctor's office. Um, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest 
challenges from a health system perspective from, that you face maybe on a day-to-day basis to get buy-in, as you mentioned, from your teams, right? What, what beyond, you know, in the individual personality conflicts on a wholesale kind of higher level, how should we think about that? Is this just a people problem um, in terms of they need to see more data, they need to see more of this, or is it, um, I guess, how would you encapsulate that problem um, and, and kind of just describe it? So there are very well uh, established change management methodologies and process improvement methodologies. I always like to say that process improvement always works. <laughs> it never fails. If you do the analysis, if you use the tools, if you follow the data, it always works. And, and you know, the, the, the mantra 10 years ago was 80% of, of lean implementations, um, and, and I'm using lean as a surrogate for a, a sort of a formal process improvement, robust process improvement um, tool implementation, fail. And in, uh, in, in the reason isn't because the tools don't work, right? The reason is because traditional leadership and management um, uh, sort of derails it, right? And, and so um, if you take a step back from if we create the leadership alignment in a given organization and we bring in the expertise around change management and around robust process improvement to create the higher reliability systems that we have a chance of being successful and that that combination has just not been in place uh, with enough resourcing and, and emphasis um, and priority uh, for it to be widespread successful across the country. Uh, but if you take the step back and you ask, why is that? Why, why aren't we using those tools more? Why aren't we, why hasn't, you know, uh, industrial engineering and, and, and uh, uh, why hasn't uh, more robust um, uh, uh, human factors uh, expertise been embedded in healthcare uh, when we kind of know of these things and we, we have places they work, then, then you really get to financial incentives. You get to um, what are the incentives of the, of the different actors in the health system? H- how are we measured? What really matters? And, um, you know, you, you look at 10 years of uh, CMS incentivizing quality, uh, whether it's a penalty program like the hospital acquired conditions or whether it's an uh, incentive program and a penalty program like hospital value-based purchasing. And, and if you look at the most recent studies, you see that the goals of those programs have not been met despite putting a lot of money at risk and clawing back a lot of money from hospitals. The hospitals that fail and receive the penalty for hospital acquired conditions tend not to then improve and get out of it, right? There's, um, and, and that was the incentive was if, if you, if you were withheld the money, then people would get their act together. They'd line up, they would put the resources in place and they'd get better. And that hasn't turned out to be the case. Um, and then, you know, you step back and you ask, well, why is that? Um, and, and it, it becomes sort of, a, I think, a complex assessment of how integrated is the healthcare system, how incentivized is it to be uh, integrated, how, um, how much do we have haves and have-nots, and it, it's those have-nots that, you know, tend to be taking care of, of uh, patients of color and, and patients with uh, disabilities and, and patients with less uh, robust insurance products or no insurance, uh, those have not organizations are the ones that tend to not be able to put the resources in place to pull themselves out and improve the quality. And, and that's, um, 
you know, those incentives, that financial model um, really is, is what we have to consider if, if we want to, to, to see everybody drive improvement and get better. I mean, that's a completely fair point when you put it that way. I mean, everything has a cost. And if you're incentivizing based on outcomes, but you're not taking into account the different levels of cost based on where you started, of course. <laughs> I mean, it makes perfect sense that way. Um, has anyone done this well? Has anyone been successful? You talked about it's really hard. There's very few systems, very few hospitals. Has anyone been able to do it and successfully put in change management? Maybe if, and if there's two, it would be great to see one that has all the resources, you know, maybe one of the, one of the, the top tier systems, but maybe one that's a small one or that doesn't have all those resources and was still able to do it. I'd love to hear, you know, when it works, how and why and when does it work? So there, there are there are many examples of organizations that have successfully implemented high reliability systems and made improvements happen. Um, and typically, like the mantra, politics is local. The, the old quality improvement mantra was all quality is local. Uh, organizations tend to be able to do that in pockets and in parts of the organization. So they create a high reliability OR or a high reliability um, endocrine clinic or a high reliability long-term care facility. But um, across the board, um, you know, the places that are seen as having prioritized and invested in this kind of work are places like, you know, Geisinger, like Intermountain, um, you know, and, and there are many others. I don't, you know, these are just the familiar names that 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 people put out. Uh, you know, Virginia Mason uh, work, and 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 and. But again, if you look across those large systems, while they have in place a lot of the expertise, the Mayo Clinic, you know, has hundreds of of industrial engineers that are embedded into the work to make improvement happen and support teams, and and they have lots of. Um, uh, robust activity happening, um, you know, it's it's it, it's rare to be able to do it across the board and sustain it for long periods of time. Uh, there there are places that start down this path, then there's leadership change, and 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 then they take steps backwards and have to kind of regroup. In general, if you look across the whole country, it's it's not robust enough. What you really need is leadership alignment uh, to start with. You need to have a measurement system. You need to have the right culture, which is determined by those local leaders that 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 promotes learning. Um, and then people have to have some skills at being able to improve a process. When you put it like that, it almost sounds too daunting to happen. <laughs> no. To keep it. <laughs> and and the way you describe one thing that stood out to me is you mentioned pockets, and I actually thought you were going to say. It happens in this hospital location, but maybe not across your entire 20 hospital system. But that's not even what you were saying. You were saying even within a hospital, it's this section, this section, this section. Uh, and I guess I'm surprised by that because a lot of the factors that you mentioned are common across one hospital anyway. The leadership, the incentive, the incentive programs, or at least I would have thought it would be. Um, how come it breaks down even within a hospital? So I, I would understand if it was hospital A does this really well, but hospital B doesn't because there's a different administration, different you know payer base, et cetera, et cetera. But when something has so many commonalities that you mentioned as, as key to success, how does it still not able? How is it still not able to do it across the board within that entire hospital, for example? So there are places that that can scale and make improvements happen. I, you know, we we talk about um, HCA 
uh, one of the, the largest for-profit hospital chains in America, and they have robust patient safety programs, and they're scaling and utilization um, of a sepsis uh, alerting tool to improve outcomes in sepsis is, is really um, as good as has been done anywhere in the country. And, and they were awarded for that program recently, a couple of years back, um, uh, by um, uh, the Joint Commission um, at, uh, with a national award for, for the outcomes they were able to create. So, so it is possible to do, but again, that's one problem, one, one issue that they were able to scale across the board um, and make significant improvement happen. Um, but if you look at an issue like um, safety culture, and, and we have lots of evidence from the literature that's a key component of creating this high reliability system that you have to have leaders that are able to um, model an expectation of improvement and excellence. They have to have leaders who can create environments of psychological safety and with inclusive behaviors that really engage the entire staff in improvement work as opposed to sort of top down, we're going to sort of, um, you know, force you to improve now um, uh, uh, ways of, of, of trying to make the change happen. Um, what matters is that local leader. It's the nurse manager in the PACU. It's the medical director in the cardiology unit. It's it's not the COO of all those units, right? And so it, it's the it's the pharmacy vice president and and their small leadership team, because everybody looks to their most immediate boss um, for those cues and for setting that culture. And so it it, it really breaks down at, at at more of a unit level than it does across an entity. No, that makes complete sense. Um, can we drill down in an area that we touched on uh, briefly earlier in terms of the ED, right? In terms of understanding what's going on in the ED, what's been going on in the ED, and when, what can still be done there. Um, just to kind of set the scene for the audience, what's the estimated rate of diagnostic errors in emergency rooms in the U.S.? And, and how many people may suffer serious harm from this as a result? To put, to put in perspective for people where maybe a portion of the hospital they're most familiar with. So that's great. Um, uh, the, that number, the actual number, is controversial, and I want to, I want to, you know, put a disclaimer out of initially by saying I actually, I don't think the actual number is important. What's important is there's too many, and we need to to work on improvement uh, to make it better. And and when I say there's too many, uh, I do not want to impugn or blame or um, or or suggest that professionals, healthcare professionals working in EDs today are not uh, highly skilled, very good at their jobs. I think that the ED becomes this focal point where there's a high pace of work. There's a lack of information. There's a lack of familiarity. There's new people coming in. It, it's the hardest place to do diagnosis. And, and I want to remind your listeners that, you know, diagnosis is hard. Um, you know, uh, uh, so, so uh, blaming folks for not doing the job well is not going to get us out of the problem we're in. We need to come together, interdisciplinary, and work on solutions. The latest um, estimates come from an AHRQ comparative effectiveness review that was that's on their website was was published in December of this past year, and they cite a, a five and a half percent diagnostic error rate across. EDs in America. And this is um, using multiple sources of data, the best sort of estimates possible, you know, likely 
uh, not perfectly accurate, um, but again, the best numbers we have. That equates across this country to seven and a half or 7.4 million diagnostic errors a year. And um, looking at the most serious ones, the ones that lead to a patient's death or permanent disability, they estimate that number is 370,000 a year. So, so there's no question that uh, sick, lots of sick people come to the ED. They have um, lots of potential um, uh, for having serious illness, and oftentimes it can be very, very hard. Uh, in a, as I, I told you earlier, our emergency department in just one of our four hospitals in our system sees 120,000 ED visits a year, and, and sorting out and separating in that chaotic environment where teams today are often overwhelmed with not enough staffing and an incredible uh, uh, amount of need, uh, sorting out who's you know really um, seriously ill from who's not, and and you know uh, in fact the ED shouldn't always make the diagnosis, right? Uh, because oftentimes they're triaging and getting uh, the patient to someone else to make the diagnosis. But uh, the nice thing about this particular review is it, it, it kind of quantifies the, the most common misdiagnoses, which include stroke, heart attack, aortic um, aneurysms and dissections and, and, and spinous, spinal cord injuries. And we all know uh, how difficult pulmonary embolism and, uh, is to diagnose, and that's up there on the list as well. Is there, in your opinion, at some level, we're not going to have a perfect system, right? There's always going to be some percent error. And I know that's probably not what you want to hear. And I'd actually, I'd be diagnosis, curious. Diagnosis is hard. No. And yeah. there are some diagnoses that are easy to make and some diagnoses that are hard to make. And and uh, again, we need to advance the science. We need to advance the 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 processes and, and, and the interconnectedness and integration of the system so that we can make that number as low as possible. But you're absolutely right. It won't be zero because diagnosis is hard. And I guess that's, that's my question. Um, and this is probably more of an academic question than anything else. But where do you think we can get in terms of what what is that low bar that we, that we think we can realistically or functionally achieve if it's, let's say, five and a half percent today? Is kind of our base run rate going to be two, going to be three, going to be maybe five is the base. I don't know. So I'm it's, curious. It's, we can do actual... better. We can do better. We know we can do better. Right. And, and we're going to do better by creating um, better systems for reliably delivering on the evidence and, and the science we already know. But we're also going to do better five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, because we're going to advance the science. Right. So so there's no limit. Right. Um, you know, think Star Trek and, you know, science fiction, you know, 100 years ago, none of us know what tools will be available that will, you know, make this issue potentially go fully away. So so I, I, I want to be very optimistic. Uh, there's things we can and should do now and things we have done. If you look over the last three decades, the rate of missed heart attacks in American medicine has has decreased. There's a lot more we're learning. Some of that is advanced technology and advanced science. Some of it is um, process improvement work and, and standardizing the care that's delivered. And there's more of both that can happen. So we take a problem like spinal epidural abs uh, uh, abscess, an infection within the spinal cord. And we know that that's one of the ones that's hard to diagnose, right? The hallmark triad to recognize it is a fever, back pain, and a neurologic deficit. 
well, how many people come to the ED or their primary care doc for back pain in, in a day in this country, much less in a year? And, and a vast minority, a tiny fraction of them, needle in a haystack, have spinal epidural abscess. And that triad of three things is present when people come only 15% of the time. So this is really hard. So in our organization, um, we've taken um, the stories of patients who came to us with back pain. We, we didn't think of it early on. We delayed the definitive diagnostic test, which is an MRI scan of the back, um, for too long, and they were paralyzed. They had harm, permanent disability, as I described, because of the delayed diagnosis. And then we got a group of, of, of nurses and, and physicians from different specialties together. We we looked at the literature, we built a standard algorithm, and because of the passion around this issue, uh, some really great physician leaders, chairs of medicine, chairs of ED, chairs of radiology, implemented this new process virtually overnight because um, uh, we never wanted this to happen again. And now, if you come to the ED of any of the four hospitals in our system, the, the teams are attuned to the risk factors um, and, and the workup, and we, we are much more suspicious of this diagnosis. We also put a clinical process in place so that if, if someone raises the flag, instead of on average eight to 10 hours to get the MRI and the reading back, it's taking less than four. Uh, because we put the effort into creating a standard process. In the six years since we implemented this, we've had zero cases of a patient harmed uh, permanently from a delayed diagnosis of, of spinal epidural abscess. And that's sort of why we do this. And that kind of story can be replicated for any of the things on the top 15 list in that um, where we can do better. We can put a team together. We can look at the available evidence. We can look at our uh, current processes and use those process improvement tools, which always work, uh, to make it incrementally better. But even more promising is going to be using that predictive algorithm or a machine machine learning algorithm that's being built in, in somebody's garage today that uh, we're going to figure out how to implement with the right workflow so that people believe it and, and, and that it actually affects outcome. And that'll allow us to scale and standardize the way things happen across a larger number of people, across a larger number of institutions, across a larger number of EDs, and create that reliable care that, that dramatically improves the outcome. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's super inspiring. Was there a particular patient or story that, that had you all picking that particular indication to focus on to start with? You bet. Yeah, you bet. So we had a, a, a woman who came to one of our outlying hospitals who didn't have an MRI scanner um, uh, staffed and operating um, overnight. And so they came to the ED and they were transferred from our community hospital to our academic medical center, effectively with a sign on their forehead saying, give me an MRI. Um, because of operational issues, chaotic ED, busy uh, miscommunications, it took 24 hours for that person to get the MRI they needed. And by the time that happened and the spinal epidural abscess was diagnosed, th they had had permanent damage from that abscess. And that really um, struck all of us as preventable, as something we needed to do something about, um, and, and sparked 
uh, the, 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 the events that I described to you. And, and as you could hear, we're, we're very proud uh, that that has not happened since. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, the results speak for themselves. One question I had is how, it's, there was a lot of intensive effort clearly that went behind it and is still clearly going on on a daily basis to maintain that level of performance. Um, how scalable is that? And then just because my background is in telehealth, does telehealth have a role to play, whether it's in the ED or the inpatient setting or elsewhere, to help with these processes, whether it's to protocolize and standardize rules-based clinical workflows, like you mentioned here, that can flag something, to your point, or whether it's to bring in a specialist earlier in the process to say, hey, this actually, instead of being your average back pain patient, is if you bring a neurologist, say, hey, maybe we should do an MRI on this patient. They're higher risk than someone who's not. So would love to get a sense of both the concept of scaling it across 15, 20 of the most common issues, and then how potentially telehealth or rules-based clinical decision-making can help expand that in a more standardized manner. So I think that's a difficult question, right? The focus on telehealth thus far has been, is it going to be less good than a face-to-face exam, and is it going to create more errors, right? And, and you know, I think the jury's out on that. We all have a horror story from covid of a misdiagnosis that happened, which we believe may not have had the patient been face-to-face. But what is telehealth, right? The majority of telehealth happening in America today is telephonic. And um, what's the difference between a telephonic telehealth um, uh, interaction and the ability there to uh, deploy a solution at scale, right? Maybe with um, with the, the next generation of uh, generative AI and 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 voice uh, recognition, maybe we will be able to do it even at that level. But that's a very different um, proposition than a video call with a um, with a Bluetooth blood pressure monitor and an O2 sat and and a bunch of bells and whistles in someone's home um, uh, where you can actually get more information. That information could then be um, uh, put into an algorithm uh, to suggest or support uh, the diagnosis or the triage or the next step in the process. Um, so so I, I think, as you know, this is evolving um, and it's evolving quickly. And, and the holy grail really is to identify those technologies and figure out the workflows so that we can allow the technology uh, to help us, um, and and so much of it really is about um, changing the perception of of you know traditional providers from worrying about being um, uh, replaced by the technology to embracing uh, that have a computer has more computing power than my brain. Um, uh, a, a recurring algorithm can get something done the same way every time. And I'm just not, uh, you know, neurologically built to do that. And so let it help me. Right. So I love the, the, the study, um, uh, done at Hopkins hospital last year published, uh, by Bayesian health, where they took their predictive algorithm for sepsis in the hospital and, and they deployed it on certain units. So we've all had these, um, uh, 
uh, alerts in the electronic medical record based on vital signs that nurses and hospitals and, and doctors in the hospital don't believe today, right? Um, I have a MUSE score of 13. My patient, uh, by the algorithm, needs to go to the ICU. They look fine. This score doesn't work. So they actually tuned the, the sepsis algorithm to say it's not going to fire an alert unless there's actually some signs and symptoms that a clinician can go to the bedside and see. So instead of predicting who was going to have sepsis 16 hours from now or 12 hours from now, they tuned it to predict people who were going to have sepsis three hours from now and had some visible sign or, or, or symptom. That workflow modification was huge because that meant when, when it alerted, and doctors went to evaluate the patient, they could actually see something, believe in, in the outcome. And, you know, the proof's in the pudding. They did the best study to evaluate it, not just what are the, 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 the diagnostic characteristics of the algorithm, um, its sensitivity specificity to identify in a random data set, but in a prospective study with controls, they they showed that when this fires and the alg and the workflows in place and people believe it, they're actually reducing the in hospital mortality of patients with sepsis by almost five percent. Which you know, find another intervention that'll do that. So so that's the promise. That's the holy grail. How do we how do we get the technology adopted? How do we shift the the mindset of folks to to want to use these aids and believe that it makes them a better physician rather than uh, replaces them? And then how do we do the hard work of testing these out and figuring out which which ones work, which ones don't? What what's the right workflow? Yeah, no, it's hundred percent. I want to be respective, uh, respectful of your time. I know we're, we're coming up on uh, on the hour here, but that last story. Um, is so interesting to me just because we see it all the time in terms of if you don't have buy-in, like you can have buy-in from administration, but if you don't have buy-in from the clinical team on the floor that's actually working with it day in, day out, you can have the greatest things in sliced bread and nothing will happen. <laughs> um, I, I just want to leave you with one last question um, since we've talked about so much. What are you most excited about and optimistic for in 2023? And what are you most concerned about for 2023? So um, thanks for the question. I'm, I'm optimistic that um, we are somewhat stabilizing coming out of this pandemic. And I'm seeing signs of teams coming together again, uh, some, some people having a bit more resiliency in their, in their home and work lives, and, and, and an increase um, in interest and, uh, and activity in, um, in improvement. I'm really optimistic about the young people coming into healthcare. And and um, and their technological savvy, their uh, their teamwork skills and and attitudes, um, and 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 incorporating more of them and helping them to get the experience and expertise they need to be those those um, uh, experienced and effective caregivers, um, uh, and then taking advantage of of their their um, enthusiasm, their their technology savvy, and 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 their um, uh, interest in helping others. Um, so that that gives me hope and 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 uh, in the future. And then the the other thing is the technology that that we are going to have tools available to us over the next 15 to 20 years. And it's going to be a lot of fun trying to implement those tools and figuring out which ones work and which ones don't. And it's going to allow us to, to maybe make those leaps we dreamed about 20 years ago and, and haven't made yet. Um, uh, so that, that's the optimistic side. Um, 
the, the things I'm worried about are really still uh, the financial model, right? I think uh, what we've just come out of in in hospitals and health systems is uh, is is the worst year on record. Uh, more financial losses. Um, that uh, the the fact that uh, because the cost of doing business has increased so much in the last three years that the 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 thin margins that so many hospitals and health systems um, uh, operated under um, uh, are now flipped and and does that financial model still work um, and and with lots of incentives and bailouts and, and, and federal support going away in the next year or two, how are we going to um, reinvent the business model quick enough? Um, uh, and, and all the stressors that kind of run downhill from that problem are the things I worry about. Yeah, no. Um, unfortunately, I think you, me, and, and many others in the industry <laughs> Uh, especially for that one. Well, Doug, thank you so much for the time this morning. I really appreciate it and can't wait to catch up with you again in the future. That was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Mina.